good evening to you all. Glad you made it out here in the midst of exams, whether you're here in the spirit of procrastination <laughs> or panic, maybe turning to God tonight, uh, or deep piety. <laughs> Great to see you all. Uh, we're continuing tonight a uh, brief three-part series uh, from the New Testament book, uh, the letter of Paul to Titus, uh, which we began last week, uh, in which uh, the Apostle Paul gives to his servant Titus instructions for how to encourage and uh, strengthen the church. And uh, uh, tonight what we want to begin to look at is how the healthy Christian life is one uh, in which sound, and, and the, the Greek word from which we get the phrase sound doctrine, that Greek word means healthy, uh, in which sound doctrine or belief is integrated uh, with healthy living and grounded uh, in, into a happy home. And so last week, David was encouraging us uh, to be committed to sound doctrine. Uh, what we believe matters. And uh, the sound doctrine, sound belief, uh, he was reminding us, is grounded in the trustworthy scriptures, uh, the Word of God. And it's centered upon the events uh, that comprise the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Uh, tonight we want to see that the central theme of this little book of Titus is that the content of our faith, what we believe, is or should be properly inseparable from the conduct of our lives. The content of our belief and the conduct of our lives, our practice, how we behave, how we live, ought to properly flow out of the content of our faith. And so this, this theme of a life uh, that, that integrates both belief and practice uh, permeates this little letter, uh, but it emerges uh, very powerfully in the verses that we're going to look at tonight from chapter 2. Right, so let me read uh, this text from Titus chapter 2, and as I read, notice this interplay of what I'm talking about, the content of the gospel and the character of life that it produces. The scripture says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous so you see how that, that these themes emerge in sort of two waves in this passage. In, in, uh, first of all, in 11 through 13, God's grace bringing salvation has appeared, and, and what is the, the, the impact of that? It trains us to renounce uh, ungodliness and to live godly lives. Or then in verse 14, what's the content? Jesus gave himself to redeem us. To what end? To purify for himself a people who are zealous for good works. And so the, the gift of salvation, when we, when we properly lay hold of it, 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 
leads to godly living. The gift of redemption leads to a life that is characterized by doing good. Genuine faith works itself out in practice. True belief, sound doctrine, properly leads to changed behavior. And, and you know, if we, if we think of the reverse of this, uh, why are so many people critical of Christians? Why are so many people critical of the church? You know, if we have sound theology without a corresponding godly conduct, what are we accused of? Hypocrisy, right? I mean, if we, if we have right belief, uh, but our practice doesn't uh, correspond to that, it subverts the whole uh, power of the gospel. One of the things that emerges so strongly in this letter is that uh, Paul is basically saying to Christians, listen, if you don't live out your faith with integrity, you undermine the power of the gospel and it's, it's uh, a convicting and convincing message. So knowing without doing, furthermore, calls into question the sincerity of our faith. So genuine Christianity, true Christianity requires, this isn't, this isn't optional, it requires both a content, as David said last week, what we believe matters. You can't just believe anything you want and say that is Christian. There, there is a content. There is a, a faith uh, delivered to the saints. There is a whole counsel of God that matters. And we ought to be committed to knowing it, to knowing the truth. But there must also be a corresponding reality of the truth lived out in life. And when, when, we, when, when our doctrine is off, uh, then the church, as well as us as individual believers, when our, when our doctrine is off, uh, we fall and we fail in ways because we, we perhaps we have a faulty view of God. We have a faulty view of ourselves. We have a faulty view of God's purposes and plan in the world. And, and that, therefore, leads us uh, down wrong paths and confuses the message to the world. Uh, I was reading a, a review of a book uh, this week on justification by faith, that great uh, doctrine that was uh, recovered coming out of the Reformation of the 16th century. Uh, it was a great work by James Buchanan, from the 19th century, and it was being reviewed by J.I. Packer, uh, who some of you will recognize his name. And in reference to that book, speaking about this all-important doctrine of justification by faith, Packer says, when justification falls, in other words, when we lose a, a right grasp on this doctrine, all true knowledge of the grace of God in human life falls with it. And then, as Luther said, the church falls with it. So God's word, his teaching, is always the final authority for us on, on what, is, what is right belief and right practice. We must have sound doctrine, but we must also concern ourselves with what, what are the implications of this. And too often, I think our lives uh, lack what we would call an integration an integration between what we affirm to be true. We come here on a Friday night. We go to church on Sunday morning. We sing, we sing hymns. I mean, the, the hymns, the songs that we sang tonight are full of content. That as you're singing those songs, you are affirming those beliefs. And yet, 
when we then say if we were to you know have videotapes of each of our lives up here and of our interior thoughts during the week, we might very well conclude, wait a minute, is that the same person who was singing that song? There's, there's a lack of integration. And, and so there is a place for us to examine ourselves, to examine ourselves, and to ask, is my Christian faith simply a matter of convenience? You know, I really like the people in PF. It's fun. It gives me something to do on a Friday night. Um, is it just a matter of your own comfort? You know, I get worried if, if you know, being able to pray makes me feel better. Or, or have, have, have I really understood, received, and believed the message that God has revealed in such a way that it inclines me to live my life in a way that conforms to that truth, in a way that gives God uh, the glory. So uh, the, the first thing that, that I, I want us to see, I mean, that, my, my first point there was simply that there's, a, there's an inseparability. There's an inseparability of our belief and our behavior. We can't separate the two. But then, second, I want you to notice, as we look at this, they're inseparable. But what is the relationship between the two? And I think this is a place where we often get confused. What's the relationship between what I believe and, and how I behave? How does this work? Um, in some ways, this is a question that's as basic as, wait, how does the Christian life work? What is the dynamic relationship between what I believe, the gospel, and, and how I behave. And the way that many Christians, the way that I myself often live, is according to what I might call a performance dynamic, right? Um, we know, okay, God has shown me mercy in Jesus Christ. We sense that we owe him our lives, that he has rescued us, that he has saved our lives, which leads us out of a mixture of of gratitude, perhaps, and often commingled with a sense of guilt, uh, to try to live in a way that's worthy of Christ. And so, uh, in this way of thinking, one of the things that we might do is we might commit ourselves to, to a variety of practices, um, spiritual disciplines, things like uh, Bible reading, like prayer, like uh, going to church, we might become part of an accountability group to help uh, encourage us uh, in our obedience. We, we might go through different practices to resist temptation because we don't want to give in to, into sin. And these are all good things. These are all things that you'll, you'll hear me and others encouraging us to do. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying about that. But we can often use all of these practices and all of these efforts that we're making, almost as a way to monitor my performance, my sort of internal barometer, perhaps, of how am I doing as a believer. And, and the performance dynamic leads us into this, this, am I good enough? Was I good enough today? Um, have I loved God well today? Have I loved my neighbor well today? And even that, I, th I would recommend you do that. It, it, on one level, is it is a daily practice of uh, soul searching, of, of self examination, of confession of sin, 
But, but what we often fall into is uh, this sort of performance uh, dynamic where we're measuring kind of our spiritual, uh, reading our spiritual barometers in a way that we can fall into imagining uh, in, in what is ultimately kind of a superstitious, ultimately kind of a pagan way. Oh, well, I guess because I missed my quiet time this morning, God's mad at me today. And so, yeah, the reason that car drove by and splashed me with a puddle is because I, you know. And, you know, we, we fall into that kind of uh, almost superstition that if I don't do these things, something's going to go wrong, something's going to go bad. Um, we begin to live as if how well things go for us is a function of how well we are performing as Christians. And I think that when, when we're living that way, we're falling into a mode of uh, living out of guilt. It's like, oh, you know, I didn't go to church, now I feel like I'm a bad Christian. Uh, and, and so we, we begin to be motivated out of, out of an effort to assuage our guilt. Or we might uh, live out of, uh, of a sense of fear. Oh, because I didn't do that, now God's going to punish me somehow. He's going to get me. But it seems to me that when we fall into that performance uh, dynamic, we're fundamentally misunderstanding grace, the grace of God. And we're fundamentally misunderstanding this, this relationship between our beliefs and how we we ought to behave, because what is so extraordinary about this to me, and, and every time I read this, I think it's it's extraordinary, is notice, just notice on the level of the grammar, the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness. The grace of God trains us to live godly lives. What what what? Titus is, is, is telling us, what the scripture here is telling us, is that what properly, another word for train is disciplines us, what properly disciplines, trains, teaches us, both inwardly in our hearts, and also outwardly in terms of our actions, it's not a sense of duty, it's not a sense of obligation, it's not fear, it's not guilt, but it is ultimately a deep, deep sense of God's favor, God's grace toward me. I don't know how the brother and wife's went off. <laughs> yeah. I guess it is sort of flashy. Um, can you guys hear me? <laughs> I can try this. So not a sense of duty, obligation, fear, or guilt. Those are all things that motivate us too much of the time. But, but to be motivated by a deep, deep sense of God's favor toward me. God's favor. I mean, what is grace? That's, that's what that word means. It is, it is God's full and undeserved favor. It is the opposite of what Scripture tells us we rightly deserve or uh, could, should, rightly expect. 
And this is where right doctrine comes into play again, because if, if your whole notion of God is that he's just this sort of paternalistic grandfather up there who just loves everybody because they're so sweet and uh, doesn't really care what anybody does, you know, he's like the grandparent who doesn't discipline the, the kids, um, you may think, well, of course God loves me. He loves me because I'm so lovable. Why wouldn't he love me, you know, right? Why wouldn't he love me? And if, if that's your sense uh, for God, then you're not really going to understand grace. Because that's not in the first place how God reveals himself to us. He reveals himself to us as our creator. He reveals himself to us as the great sovereign over the universe, as, as the righteous one, as the judge of all the earth. And the fundamental uh, message of Scripture is that we have no right to expect that he would be favorable toward us, that he would be gracious toward us. And so we might actually ask the question, why would God show us his grace? And what the Scripture teaches us, what the, the passage that we're looking at here uh, teaches us. And go, go on to the next slide, Stephen. This is later in... Uh, Titus. What the scripture teaches us is that God shows us grace, not because we are worthy of it, not because we deserve it, but look, out of his goodness, out of his loving kindness, later in verse 5, according to his mercy. And it's not because we deserve it. In fact, it's not because of works done by us. We are justified not because we are righteous, but by his grace. And, and so what the scripture is teaching us is that God is, is motivated to show us grace, not because we deserve it, not because we're so lovable, but out of his deep mercy and love. And when we begin to comprehend things like that, we begin to understand more deeply what a wonder it is that God has shown us his favor. And how does he do this? Well, again, this text is, is very clear. Uh, he, he has done this through Jesus Christ, through uh, the death of Jesus Christ. Go back to the, to the previous passage. Through the uh, redemption that is in Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. God has shown us his grace and his mercy through the death of his son on the cross. And so that leads me back to the text where we, where we started on this. What does it mean then for Paul to say that the grace of God trains us or disciplines us? Well, I think I, to me, as I've, I've looked at this, I, I, I hear some things. First of all, it means that we might say as a loving parent would discipline his children, God doesn't merely forgive us our sins but he is always at work for our good. He's always at work in our hearts and in our circumstances to transform us more fully into the image of Christ. And so a, a passage like Philippians 1, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. God is always at work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. And what is his good pleasure? His good pleasure is that you would be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Second, what does it mean for God's grace to train us? It means that, that the renewal, and this goes to the, to the point where I, I'm 
was talking about our misunderstanding that the renewal that that uh, uh, is is ongoing is not in the first place primarily our work at all. And here's the great mystery of the gospel, that the renewal work that God is at work doing in each of his children, it's not primarily our work, it is God's work in us. The grace of God trains us. God at work. God is not asking you to do the impossible. Because frankly, if it, if it depended upon any of us to transform ourselves into the image of Christ, we would have to rightly say, God, I cannot do that. That is impossible. And some of you might even say, God, I try. I am trying. And I am failing. That's right. That, it, that's impossible. God does not ask us to do the impossible. He is powerfully at work in you to do the impossible. And that is good news. That is the grace of God training you. Third, it means that we always stand in relation to God in his favor. Romans chapter 5, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And and we have gained entrance by faith into this grace in which we stand. I mean, it would be sort of like, you know, you gained entrance into a room, or, or just to give a spatial, there's nothing that's going to cast you out of that space. You are in that space. As God's children, we stand in relation to God. We are in his favor. We enjoy his favor because of Christ. And so our standing with God is not a fragile thing that you're going to ruin because you missed your quiet time or because you didn't take that opportunity to share your faith or because you, you lusted wrongly at, or, or because you were dishonest. I, you know, are we supposed to do any of those things? No. But your standing with God is not a fragile thing that, that you can destroy because you stand in relation to him, you are in his grace. And that fourthly means that we are motivated as believers, not by our guilt, not by a sense of obligation or fear, but out of a deep sense that I am loved eternally. That I am a beloved child of God. That he is for us, not against us. And, and when you begin to grapple with those things, you begin to understand what it means that the grace of God is at work in you to train you for godliness. Grace does what, what a law cannot do, what a rule cannot do, what moral instruction cannot do, what discipline cannot do, what uh, accountability cannot do. What grace can do is change the human heart. It can transform your desires. Notice how the text says that the grace of God teaches us to say no to worldly passions, epithumia, worldly desires, unbridled desire. God's grace can change 
your, your very desires. These verses, one writer says, are arguably the most concise explanation of gospel-centered living found anywhere in Scripture. These qualities, self-control, to be upright, to be godly, to be zealous for good works, are produced by embracing, by living in and under the grace of God. A profound encounter with the grace of the gospel is the only thing that can produce change at the level of our basic desires. And so I, I want you to see that, that the relationship between belief and behavior is not that the, the behavior arises out of duty, obligation. No, it arises out of a deep apprehension of grace. And then the third thing that I want us to see as we look at this text is the impact of this right belief upon our behavior. The impact. When, when we begin to understand both what God has done for us at the cross, he has graciously delivered us from our sin, from guilt, as Laura prayed, from death. And, and what he is presently doing for us, he is graciously training us, disciplining us as a loving father into the likeness of Christ. Then we begin to grasp the, the, the wonder of his favor and his mercy and his love. And this will inevitably begin to have an impact. God's grace motivates those who experience it. And what, what Paul says here is it motivates us both negatively and it motivates us positively. Negatively, it motivates us to say no to certain things that we would naturally say yes to. Uh, to say no to ungodliness. What is that? That's a, that's a lack of reverence for God. It's a disregard for God. It's, it's to, to live my life as though he didn't exist. And by our nature, that is how we are all inclined. But, but how could we disregard one who had treated us so kindly? The grace of God teaches us to say no to disregard for God. It teaches us to say no to our worldly passions. Uh, these are our desires, uh, our inmost desires, which are shaped. Uh, scripture uses this world not to speak of the physical earth, but of, of the world uh, in its values, its priorities, its goals, its loves, as set, up, uh, set against God. And so worldly desires are desires that are shaped by values and priorities that are set against God rather than by the values and priorities that God says are good. And, and the grace of God takes those desires that once caused us to, to spurn God, to harden our hearts against him, fell against him, and, and to, to live in alienation that, that led us previously actually to experience a kind of disintegration as we rejected our, our creator, the grace of God, brings us to a place of saying, no, I don't want to go down those paths anymore. But biblical holiness, godliness of life is never, as is so often caricatured, merely a negative thing. You know, Christians are people who are against things. Christians are people who don't do this and don't do that. You know, they don't smoke, they don't chew, they don't go with girls that do. And um, you all know that, right? No. 
to live what kind of, of life. There's always a saying no to one thing, but yes. Yes to the character, to the quality of life that we were created for, that, that leads to, to human flourishing, that blesses other people, that blesses societies. Uh, and he characterizes this by, by these words, self-control, uprightness, godliness, self-control that has to do with, with our mastery over ourselves, our bodies, our hearts, in our minds, that word uh, upright has to do with how we treat other people, our neighbor, our actions within our communities, within our culture, and godliness, uh, again, against ungodliness, it has to do with how we live in a way that honors God in all of our ways. And if you read the letter to Titus, it's short, you can do it in about 10 minutes, you will find abundant emphasis upon this character of life. These are just three words this character of life to which we are called. And this is a character of life that when we, when, when, when our belief our, our, in the gospel begins to really permeate our hearts and our minds, this is a character of life that will change the world, that has changed the world. And so much uh, uh, of, of the good that... that we see in the world today is there, there's a bright line to people who were transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was having a conversation with an atheist earlier this week uh, who was from China who had been deeply impressed because he heard uh, a, a Christian man from China preaching about how Christians brought the gospel to China. And, and in bringing the gospel to China, they brought so many blessings. Uh, Chinese Christian schools had been the first places where Chinese could receive a modern education, the first to permit the enrollment of girls, the first to employ women teachers, missionary hospitals, clinics saved tens of thousands of lives, missionary-coordinated famine relief saved hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. Missionaries have been leaders in movements to abolish the opium trade, to end the custom of binding and crippling the feet of young girls as a means of increasing their desirability for marriage. All in all, the missionary contribution to the making of modern China is considerable. I'm not saying it's perfect, that there weren't mistakes made, but, but the gospel, right belief, a right apprehension of the gospel, when it, when it lays hold of a person's heart, it will make an impact on how we live in the world. And now more than ever, we, you in this room, we, we need to consider this deeply. I'm reading a book uh, some of you have heard of by Russell Moore called uh, Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel. And in his conclusion, he writes, he writes this, if I can find it. He says, in the public square, orthodox evangelical Christianity has articulated a vision of human dignity, of religious liberty, of family stability, sometimes heroically, if never consistently enough. 
Christians sought to remind the church that we're to be the sort of people who recognize justice and righteousness. We should continue the best of that tradition. We should push back against the fallenness and injustice around us and within us. We live in a world where too many children are disposed of as medical waste, where too many languish in orphanages and in group homes. We live in a world where too many persons are trafficked and molested. Too many are ravaged by divorce and poverty. Too many are placed in shallow graves as a result of famine or disease or genocide. Too many are dehumanized because of their ethnicity or their immigration status or their stage of development. Too many are harassed for their deepest convictions by tyrants or armies or bureaucrats. We ought to stand then with conviction and contend as the prophets and apostles did before us against injustice. But we must do so with voices shaped by the gospel and with a convictional kindness that flows out of the gospel. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, teaching us to say no to what is evil, to what is unjust, and saying yes to what is righteous and what is good and true, and, and to be a people who are zealous for what is good. I found uh, this quote, I think it's the last slide, uh, from a, a favorite author of mine, Walker Percy. By remaining faithful to its original commission, by serving its people with love, especially the poor, the lonely, and the dispossessed, by not surrendering its doctrinal steadfastness. Notice that. Sometimes even the very contradiction of culture by which it serves as a sign, surely the church serves the culture best. There's a fundamental inseparability. What we believe matters, and, and what we believe should not be separated from how we live. And the relationship between those two is that it's God's grace that ought to explode in our hearts in such a way that we become a people who are zealous, eager, motivated to do good in the world. What about you? What about me? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. I pray that you would impress and challenge it upon our hearts tonight that we might go forth and serve in the power of the Spirit with deep conviction of the truth of the gospel of its transforming power first in our lives but then in our community and the community of faith and then in the world we pray in Christ's name